Mike, Almighty One, our sacrifice begins. We commence. Spellbird, a podcast about the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. It's time to party like it's 1974. This week on Spellburn, we're celebrating a very special occasion. Saturday, June 17th, 2017 marks the fifth free RPG day since the release of Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. The heavens shook and the abyss trembled and the masters of reality feared for their grip on the ether. Since then, thousands of adventurers have fought, lived, and died, mostly died, for glory and gold, as we learned to imagine the wizard, the fighting man, the cleric, and even the halfling in a whole new way. How do you celebrate such an auspicious occasion? By summoning the great immortal Dark Master himself, of course. I'm Judge Julian, and with me are Judge Jeff. Hello. And Judge Jen. Hey, guys. And with us is none other than... Strange to finally confront Prince of Darkness himself. Judge Joseph Goodman. Hi, everybody. I may not sound like the Dark Master, but apparently I am. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a moniker you're going to live with for quite some time. (laughs) It appears to be the case, yes. (laughs) It seems to have stuck. Thanks for inviting me to the show. I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. Oh, thank you for joining us. It's a it's a great pleasure, and we look forward to a, a unique happy birthday show uh, coming right up after this segment of Tavern Talk. Welcome, friends. Good to see you. I only had one drink to calm my nerves. And give it a drink of your most expensive. Tavern Talk. Okay, here in Tavern Talk, we will talk about what we've done in gaming this past week. Uh, I'll kick it off with a rave about North Texas RPG Con uh, that we went to last weekend. I was there with Judge Jeff and had an absolute blast. Uh, I almost don't want to talk it up too much because the the small and intimate nature of the con was really one of the coolest things about it. As a GM, I ran a bunch of games and every game was full of other GMs as players and we just had a ton of fun. It, it was all hardcore DCC players and a few old school D- AD&D guys and uh, just had an absolute blast. My only regret is that I did not get to play in enough games, so I'm going to have to cut back on GMing and play in some of the crazy cool types of uh, games that were on offer next year if I go again. Uh, what do you think, Jeff? I thought it was awesome. I had a, I had so much fun going down to North Texas for this event. Uh, I'd never been to this con before. It was definitely different than the cons I'd been to before. I've only been to Gen Con and Gary Con previously, you know, and Gen Con has 60,000 people. Gary Con has 1,600. This was like two or 300 people. It was a completely different atmosphere. I had a great time. I would say the two big highlights for me would be playing in Bunnies and Burrows with Dennis Sustare. Just it was it was so amazing. I mean, Bunnies and Burrows is the world's first non-fantasy role-playing game. Uh, and to have the 
the pleasure to play it with its creator was a really unique experience that I will treasure always. And also he made these little, these little wooden bunnies that he uh, hand painted himself that he gave to everybody who played and, uh, and, and signed the backs of them. Very sweet. And the game itself was a blast. And the other highlight would be the, the uh, Barrow duel. I was in Edgar Johnson's table and uh, of course, our table one. And it was just a really fun kind of player versus player, uh, table versus table two. Each table was its own group of adventurers. We went into this dungeon and the two different tables were working on behalf of these competing wizards. So as soon as the two groups run into each other in the dungeons, it just went right into PvP mode. And as soon as we ran into them, somebody on my team cast Choking Cloud, got a natural 20. We burnt it all the way up so that on the very first move, on the very first uh, round of combat, completely TPK'd the other table. And uh, to get the revenge, they ended up uh, coming back in with all new characters, but then they maxed out their spellburn to uh, ward portal us into our little tomb so that we couldn't escape. So it was a lot of that kind of silliness back and forth, but we had a, we had a lot of fun doing that. And I also ran Fatesville Hand, which was a blast. And uh, it, it's showing me that I... yeah. It's showing me that I, I really I really enjoy running games at cons, so I get to run four at Gen Con, and I'm I'm excited to to, to run some more. So Jeff did uh, was Hobbs on your team or the other team? Oh, he was on the losing team. Oh, geez. Okay, I just purely asking if from a practical, <laughs> um, observational type of question there. No, no. Okay, just wondering. Okay, great. Well, Jen, I'm so sad you didn't get to go to NT, but. Uh, Maybe yeah. you had some fun somehow anyway. Um, well, sadly, there's been no gaming in the last couple of weeks. You know, of course, we had to go over and do some family stuff in Vegas instead. And uh, while we were out there, we popped into a couple of shops in Vegas and even sold somebody on Free RPG Day. And then we discovered nothing between St. George, Utah and Reno. Is going on. There are no participating friendly local gaming stores in all of Southern Nevada, which kind of made us sad. So then we came home and we've been really hitting the schedule hard because we're organizing the free RPG day festivities for dungeon games out here. Sorry that that's my quickie little past week. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Not a, thank not a you. Whole, not a whole lot of excitement, but well, that, you know, yeah. it, it was kind of nice to see, um, some gaming stuff on the shelves, but sadly, none of our favorite. So, so Judge Joseph, do you, uh, with everything going on for you, do you actually get some time to play or judge or uh, do that stuff on a regular basis these days? I do, but not the way that I used to. I used to game with grownups. I now mostly game with my five-year-old son. Um, <laughs> oh. and eventually, that will evolve, I'm sure, into you know, back into the kind of gaming we all do at conventions, but uh, he's a lot of fun and he, I have an extensive board game collection and obviously a lot of RPGs plus just a lot of like books and comic books and pulp novels and all that kind of stuff um, lying around my house. So yeah, he's uh he's slowly working his way through my board game collection and I, you know, he'll discover a game and I'll boil it down to some simplified version of the rules. And then uh, like we just played boss monster last week. And um, if you guys know that I card love game, that one. Yes. Yeah. And I like really kind of boiled it down to a very simple, you know, uh, version of it. Um, he's really into chess and he needs a lot of, you know, coaching and encouragement, reminding of the rules, um, risk 22, 10 AD. He loves like just the pieces. So I do a little simple battles with him. So we're wow. working our way towards more advanced games. 
Very cool. Oh, awesome. Well, that's great. I, I always love to hear about uh, people bringing the next generation of gamers along. Uh, I had a chance to uh, GM a Nowhere City session with Tony Hogard, Judge Tony, I should say, and uh, his daughter at uh, North Texas. That was a lot of fun. She was a great player. And uh, it's always cool when people bring their kids and stuff. So she's a little further along age-wise, Joseph, but, you know, that's, you know, that's what you have to look forward to, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to say exactly what led to DCCRPG, but I used to run D&D games for all my little cousins at all the family reunions. You know, once or twice a year we'd get together and I had all these cousins who ranged from, I mean, it varied over the years, but probably eight or nine of the youngest up until the mid-teens and it was really hard to run D&D 3rd Edition for them and essentially impossible to run 3rd Edition because for people who play the game once every six to nine months, you know, or when they see me at a reunion, there's just so much um, uh, education required to jump into those systems. Mm-hmm. So it was one of many things that got me thinking about how do you make a game that has very low entry barriers and you can just start playing right away because I got tired of uh, prepping them for hours on the rules and how to roll up a character and so on and so forth before we could actually play the game. And I kept working towards simplified versions to just jump in and play with kids. Yeah, that that's a uh, that is a brilliant um, observation. We even my hardened uh, criminals of players from college, we would get together and it would take hours to make a freaking third edition player character when we had our reunions and stuff. Yeah, exactly. And now with Purple Sorcerer, easier than ever. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yes. Great segue. Thank you, John Marr. All right, so uh, I think we're going. This is a special occasion, so. Uh, we, I negotiated hard, but they weren't going to let me sing a happy birthday to DCC today. So instead we're going to go right on into mighty deeds and have a great Q and a session with judge Joseph. You're welcome. Let the combat begin. Why behold our hero. We want to play rough, eh? We'll take this. Mighty deeds. All right. Now is this where you guys ask me questions? Exactly. All right. I'm ready to go. I want, you, I want you to think of me as the morally safer of role-playing games. Okay. I already did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. <laughs> and now I should tell you, since we're talking anniversaries, um, you guys probably know this story, but I was also heavily involved in the creation of Free RPG Day. So it's kind of interesting that you reminded me this is the fifth anniversary of DCC, which I like probably should have marketed and promoted somehow, but I forgot. But it's also the 11th anniversary of Free RPG Day, which is pretty exciting as well. Oh, Both of those yeah. are milestones I'm proud of. Yes. Yeah. Well, so um, five years in, uh, it's been a heck of a ride. Um, I, I know I've been in it since the beta rules, and I think I was one of the people who said, no percentile thief skills. Although, <laughs> eh, you know, I, yeah. I, I actually kind of like I mean, I don't know. Got, uh, what do they say? Consistency is the hobgoblin of small minds, right? Yeah. But anyway, so Joseph, five years in, uh, I, my first question is kind of what great story or couple great stories or three great stories about the origins of DCC RPG are hidden from you know prying eyes? Is there are there any cool uh, nuggets that you want to share on this auspicious occasion? Um, wow. You know, I feel like I've talked about this before and written about this before, so I don't um, – it might even be in the core book somewhere. But so to think of things that I haven't discussed is hard, and it really did. It wasn't – there wasn't some – you know, it wasn't like I was struck by lightning and it all happened overnight. It was definitely an evolution over time of many ideas and thoughts and concepts. But I would say in a strange way that the 
biggest catalyst for the game actually coming into existence was probably D&D 4th Edition. I think prior to that, I was comfortable enough with all the publishing I was doing and comfortable enough playing D&D 3rd Edition that I wasn't sufficiently provoked to try to do something new or different. Uh, but 4th Edition came along, and from a business perspective, after roughly six to nine months, it was uh, not a viable publishing solution. Um, and then from a personal play perspective, I just had a really hard time. <laughs> I mean, frankly, I could not get into it. And, you know, I want to part of the, I do good games for fun, right? I, I do this to immerse myself in something I love. So I need to have some sort of personal connection. And it's not like I'm going to love everything equally. And there's certainly products I'm more connected to than others. But yeah, man, fourth edition was hard. I still remember we went to, uh, I think it was called WinterCon at the time. There's a convention up in, exactly, is it Fort Wayne, I believe. And the name has changed over the years, but it's essentially, it used to be the big RPGA convention. It's in January every year. I think that it's now called WinterCon. But after fourth edition came out, I decided to have a presence at that convention because it was uh, as close as you could come to a major Wizards of the Coast gathering to promote fourth edition. So we actually got a booth and they had a very small um, exhibit hall. And I brought on, I think five or six of us went there to run games. Um, Doug was there. Chris Doyle was there. Aaron Rudell was there. I think Adrian Pommier was there. I think Brendan might have been there too. A lot of us went there to run fourth edition and promote the system and so on. And that was where I actually played my first fourth edition games uh, game. Actually, Adrian judged it. And it was just this like, we played for like four hours and we slogged through a single encounter that was like fighting some sort of like demon frogs or something. Oh. And I just can't believe I spent four hours essentially, you know, moving figures around the chessboard. And it would have been fine if it was marketed as something else. But for that to be indeed needs was just, it was, I walked away thinking like, I need to find something I can put my heart into. Um, and then, of course, the you know the Great Recession happened, and then on top of that, fourth edition, kind of the bottom fell out of that market. And from there, there were several years of trials and tribulations and figuring out what I wanted to do and sort of testing certain concepts. I mean, I think I've talked about this before, but the Dungeon Alphabet was in many ways kind of a dry run on what the DCC RPG book could look like in terms of old school art and layout. Um, there were many iterations of a game that I played with Doug, which sort of eventually sort of became DCC RPG. There was this one camping trip in the Southern California desert where we spent um, several days basically just playing games out in the desert, and that led to a lot of great ideas. Um, and then I happened to live in San Diego at the time, which has great beaches, so I would just go to the beach and basically read and write, and it was a really sort of fertile environment, just really beautiful place and a good place to get inspiration. Um, then there are also lots of places to game down there, and I was doing a lot of gaming, sort of pickup gaming, and I ran a game at a local store, and there's probably a bunch of other stuff too, but somehow all that came together and helped produce the game. I love that, it. That is the, uh, I think that is the first time I've heard fourth edition D and D described as sort of a radical success in a sense, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, yes. It, yes. it brought us something great in a sort of sideways manner. So uh, thank you to uh, Mike Merles and uh, you know the whole team. <laughs> um, it, it, okay, enough on yeah. that. Um, well, you know yeah. what they tried? They tried something new. And you know, hats off. It was different. It was new. It was, it, it was a change. Okay, enough on that. So, yeah. um, I, I kind of have a two-part question for you. Sure. Yeah. You know, five years later, you know, what's the thing you're most surprised by? You know, like where did you think you would be, and and what happened that you didn't expect, or what didn't happen for that matter that you thought maybe would have come to pass in those five years? I think the thing that most surprises me is the word Gonzo. I had never once used that. I didn't even know what that word meant um, <laughs> it, when developing the game. It was never an intent. It was never part of the design process. There was never any idea of like, hey, let's do crazy things. 
It was just about creating a play experience that was um, that gave the players something they didn't expect. It didn't have to be wild or crazy at all. It could be as simple as you know a blue humanoid that turns out to have the stats of an orc. But I just played so many games where either the you know the monster would be described as an orc, or they'd say, oh, and then the you know you see a large muscular humanoid who's green and has tusks and a pig nose, and we're like, oh, great orcs. Like it, it just became so mundane and boring. And I still remember that, like now I see it in my five-year-old, but that sense of excitement and wonder and incredible enthusiasm when there's something that you just don't know what's going on. And if you take veteran gamers and give them something where they don't know the rules, like they don't know the stats of the creature, they don't know the weaknesses and the strengths, it, it changes the way they play in such a radical manner. Um, but that, that's what I was going for in a lot of ways. There was never an intent to do something crazy or wild. Um, and the fact that it's now, in many cases, labeled or interpreted as a gonzo game I think it's kind of interesting. That certainly was not where I thought it would go. Hmm. That That's fair. And on the flip side of that, were you expecting something out of this uh, movement, per se, that didn't actually happen in these five years? Hmm. That's a good question. What I really wanted was a game that I enjoyed playing and that I could just quickly and easily run games for. Um, and I wanted to encourage people to get back to that era of D&D where there were you know, where every game group was different and it was normal to have house rules and there would be a little bit of negotiation before every game as to what what type of game we're playing. Like, this is going to be weird, but in a sense, I think that, uh, I think Monopoly is a brilliant game. I, I love Monopoly and I look to it in game design principles to a large degree because they don't, you know, Monopoly doesn't describe the 2D6 engine, you know, and give you all this overcomplicated <laughs> rubbish, you know, on somebody's infatuation with design principles. They just say, run 2D6, you know, roll the dice and like move. And it's fun, you know, and that like there's so many RPGs that take themselves too seriously and they're talking to themselves and it becomes this like circular audience. Whereas I wanted to talk to, I mean, I still think the book's way too big. I want to be talking to youth, um, people who, I mean, I remember I got into D&D and that kind of stuff when I was a teenage boy and we need more games to talk to that audience, not games to talk to either mature adults or game designers. Um, so I guess, uh, I guess I'm glad that it's turned into a game where that's the case and that house rules are accepted and there's a certain level of just let's do this and have fun. Um, and there's still some people out there. I still get emails and requests, you know, for rules clarifications and uh, <laughs> Doug and I handle these requests completely differently. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yes. My answer is, you know, guys, it's up to you. Like we're deliberately vague. Like I've, I've deliberately not clear. I, I keep a log of all the errors in the book that we sort of correct with each printing. And there's several that I, you know, contradictory rules that I deliberately have not corrected because that's the way it should be. You should have to think a little bit and decide which way you want to play it. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, I like that a lot. That that, that explains a lot. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and it and it's definitely in the tradition of Gygax, I would say. Yeah, for sure. So Joseph, what is it from the past five years that you think that you're the most proud of? Hmm. I think it'd just be that design principle of fun. The fact that, you know, there's still a certain number of players who really want rules clarifications, but most people just accept the game and, and play it and have fun, and that's what it's supposed to be about. Right? That's fair. That, that was really short. Are you sure? Okay. Um, so uh, next question. If you could do one thing different with perfect 2020 hindsight, what would it be? Uh, that's interesting. Well, so, you know, many, like I said, many things happened to make the game what it was. Um, in addition to fourth edition and, and this desire to just have a fun, simple game, I had also discovered a lot of the appendix in literature around the same time. Um, it's funny looking back because that same trip to, to Fort Wayne, Indiana for WinterCon was um, on that trip. We were talking fantasy fiction and I read virtually no fantasy fiction as a child or young adult. I just never was into it. I had, you know, I did plenty of reading, but it was just 
all these other topics or all these other things. And I still remember that, uh, like everybody in the trip had read one or two or maybe three of the appendix in authors. Nobody had read all of them. But in over the course of that trip, it just got hearing about the different, you know, different people who'd read this author, that author. I mean, I guess it's just when you hang out with a bunch of guys for, you know, five or six days and you're driving a long distance. And then on top of that, we were at a convention where, you know, business was slow. So we were hanging around talking a lot. And that that con sort of was the first place where I decided, like, oh, I should really look into this, you know, appendix in literature and get to know it. Uh, you know, obviously that led one thing to another, to another. And I just started reading it and eventually decided to read all of it. Um, but I guess my understanding of the and I guess, sorry, the other element of that that was important was this was the very beginning of the OSR. Actually, the term OSR may not have existed at that time, but I think James Malazuski's blog, Grognardia, was like either just appearing or starting to appear, and there was this uh, resurgence of interest in the, in the inspirations behind classic D&D, and I think all that swirled together, and that got me really interested in learning about a lot of things that led me to get involved in the primary sources of D&D, um, and, and that led me to approach just the design process in a different way. Instead of uh, working on iterations of iterations of iterations of iterations, I was just going back to the well in the original the original place. So this is a long answer to your question, but I think if I could do something different, like since then I've continued to go backwards that way. You guys can't see this because we're not in video, but like at my desk right now, I have about 50 copies of Abraham Merritt books because I've gone back to, like I have in front of me um, here. I'm going to turn on my video so you can actually see this. Hold on. <laughs> So listeners, sorry, you can't see this, but can you guys see me? Yeah. Okay, yeah, so like, here's the moon pool. This was, I don't even know what edition, one of the original pulp oh, editions. Man. Just, oh, that's gorgeous. You know, another edition of the moon pool more recently. And then here's another one, you know, and then this is the British edition. And this was one of the, <laughs> this is actually a rare, hard to find US edition. And then this was another edition, you know, back in the pulp era. Then this is back before they consolidated when it was actually separate stories, the moon pool and the conquest of the moon pool, you know, but I'm, I'm getting more and more interested. All right, video off. But you get the idea. Like I'm going sort of further and further. And this is just like my personal interest. And uh, somewhere along the way, I, I realized that there are other people also interested in the same things I am. Um, and that led me to uh, sort of, I'd say, after many years of publishing, sort of have the confidence to just do what I like. And and I believe there'll be other people who also like that and will respond positively to it. Um, and therefore, it becomes a, a viable business strategy. But as I keep going further and further back down this trail of Appendix N and then to the original sources behind that and the pulp stories, and now I'm kind of sort of starting to think I want to start playing Gettysburg because so many of the classic wargamers point to that as the point where they first got interested in the sort of strategic gaming that eventually led to the creation of D&D. And I just ask myself sometimes, like, if I wrote that game now, five years later, with this even deeper understanding of some of the, pro- some of the primary sources who knows how it would turn out different. It'd be interesting to see. Since um, before we go into the next question, let me follow up with one thing, which uh, Joseph, if you don't have a good answer for this, I'm, I wouldn't, you know, maybe you, you probably do have a better answer than me, but I can't really have a good answer myself. What is it about appendix and fiction that is different? I mean, of course it's a very, it's a mixed bag. It's a completely various type of bag, but, but there is something different about that fiction from the 30s 40s 50s 60s 70s sometimes even a little earlier than that that has a kind of different quality than what we have today and you know what is it that makes it appendix n it's not that gary put it in the dmg right um yeah i i sort of go to two things to to describe what i'd say is the essence of appendix n one is a lack of awareness of the existing role-playing games or D&D, mm. and one is a lack of awareness of the existing of genres for this kind of fiction. 
Um, like if you go back far enough um, to the era of some of the pulp magazines that published this, this stuff originally, there was no such term as fantasy. That, that wasn't a term used to describe this. There was also not the term um, science fiction. Those terms didn't exist. There, there were different words that were used, um, you know, like weird tales, just called it, I forget what they called it. But if you go back and look at the pulps, like you won't see those terms. There was a term called scientifiction, which is used for a while before science fiction came about. There was, um, I think, speculative fiction, if I'm remembering right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there was yeah. this, you know, adventure fiction. There were all these words that were used before anybody ever thought to apply these boxes around it and say, this is what you're getting. So, it, you know, it annoys me now when I read a modern fantasy story and, you know, they describe dragons in terms that are clearly derived from D&D or even derived from the genre because I prefer the stuff that didn't know this genre existed and so they would make things up wholly i don't know i just love it when they they don't know they're writing in a certain box and so the box disappears and they can be free and that's how a lot of these i think original authors mixed concepts that we now clearly break out as different genres and say well no this couldn't happen at the same time you know but of course they can if you if you're not differentiating like abraham merrick who i was just talking about you know a lot of his stories there's this trope of like modern American explorer, you know, transported to distant land, you know, which you also see in the Edgar Rice Burroughs novels and a lot of other places. And now you, you just don't see stories like that anymore because that idea is, seems kind of weird because fantasy doesn't exist with modern guys. But, like, it wasn't even a problem to think about that back in that era. Um, and then that second aspect of they wrote without any awareness of D&D. So there was um, nowadays so many stories have a dwarf and an elf and a wizard, you know, and they're obviously guys who played D&D and then they wrote the story. Um, and I love it when I read stories where clearly these people have no awareness of the existence of role-playing games or D&D or any of that, and they're writing in a way that is just naive in a certain sense. That I, I want to encapsulate that answer. <laughs> <laughs> so, Joseph, if you don't mind me asking you a little bit more about this, because you know, I'm running an appendix, an appendix and book club, and I'm working my way through this right now. I'm curious, are there any authors or titles that you're just really into right now that actually aren't on the appendix end who are very much a part of that era uh, that you would like to recommend? Uh, that, well, so I'll tell you what I'm reading right now. I don't know if this is good or bad, but I'm on this sort of slow expiration of what I'll call adventure stories. Mm-hmm. I mean, appendix end, you know, a lot of that content was even like Robert E. Howard. I mean, he wrote a lot of stuff that we certainly call fantasy now, but he also wrote the Breckenridge Elkin stories and these kind of like, you know, hillbilly, uh, I don't know what you call them, hillbilly adventure stories and a lot of boxing stories. Like there's a lot of stuff that's just more traditional adventure type stories. Mm-hmm. So like I, I've, I've been reading some Jack London short stories. Um, I got all the Ian Fleming original James Bond novels and I've been working through them. Oh, nice. I just read my first, yeah, I just read my first Ellery Queen novel. Um, I, I, yeah, I just read a um, Agatha Christie, two Agatha Christie novels. I'm a, I'm also, I'm, yeah, I'm also reading some, uh, some other what's called more traditional, like Hemingway, basically. But God, it's slow. But I'm slowly working my way through it. Uh, I feel like I should read it, and, and a friend of mine was reading it and got me turned onto it. So yeah, I, I'm slowly sort of branching out. I don't know if I'd recommend all this. I mean, they're great stories. I don't really know where this will go, but th- just that idea of adventure. The other thing that I'm getting into is what I call real life adventure. And if you talk to Harley about this, he has great advice on this, but he actually goes out into the wild, probably because of his upbringing, but, you know, does skiing and, and does exploring and camping and so on. And I do a fair amount of camping and I like to take my son and my wife along and we've we've been doing a lot of camping. But um, I uh, a couple months ago, I ha- had several of the Gooming Games creative guys out here to California where I live and we did a creative retreat where we just went to a lot of really interesting locations that kind of inspire you to um, – to think about adventure in real world, world terms, you know, like we, you know, visited Alcatraz um, and a, there's a scuttled uh, nuclear missile launch site near here, which you can get tours of in the park service if you work it out. Um, 
and the Winchester Mystery Mansion, and there's a, a gravitational anomaly in the Santa Cruz Mountains where, like, you know, things roll uphill and it might be a hoax, it might not. What do you oh, think? Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah, there's like, there's, I live in California, which is an amazingly diverse place and the elephant seals come here every year around winter time and they, first the males fight, then they breed, then they have little babies, but you can do these ranger led tours and actually see the elephant seal breeding grounds. Um, and we just did a, we actually, we toured an aircraft wow. as well that's out here, but a lot of things that I think get you out of that, it's easy to get stuck in the routine, you know, and if you bust mm-hmm. out of that, whether it's by reading or doing real life activities that force you to just perceive the world differently, I think it helps you to stay creative. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm not sure if this is chicken or egg here, but I, I, I don't know if you were in some ways responsible for the resurgent in, uh, resurgence in interest in the Appendix N or if your your interest in it was kind of a product of that time. But I'm, I'm curious, now that people are more interested in the Appendix N, how do you think that that is informing contemporary game design and how do you think that informed kind of old school gaming in general? You know, that's a good question, but I feel like I'm completely unqualified to answer. Okay. I decided at a certain point that I would stop paying attention to what the rest of the gaming world was doing. Mm-hmm. So I have no idea. Okay. I don't pay attention to it anymore. I, uh, there, was, there was an era in, um, you know, and everybody levels up as they move along in life. And I feel like I've leveled up as a publisher. And there was this early era of third edition publishing where all the publishers were trying to be the first guy to do the dwarf book or the first guy to do the elf book or whatever. And we were all paying close attention to who was doing what. And we were all operating the same turf. And I think over time... I realized that that was not uh, developing my voice as a publisher at all. It, it just became a, a derivative process among all of us publishing stuff that was you know, mildly differentiated, but the customers clearly couldn't tell who was different. Um, and then after the fourth edition crash, I decided basically I needed to be more introspective as a publisher and focus on what I liked and find people who also like similar things. And it didn't do me any good to look at other people because I didn't want it to influence me. And I just decide I would stop caring. So honestly, I actually pay, there's a reason like I don't go to the NEs. I don't enter the NEs. I just don't pay attention to whatever anybody else is doing unless like some of my friends in the industry, I'm curious what they're doing, but honestly, I have no idea. I try not to pay attention to that. Fair enough. Okay. So part of the greater RPG world and community that you might pay attention to, uh, what's the impact of DCC RPG on all, all of this? Well, a lot of people seem to like playing it, which is great. I think, uh, <laughs> <Come on. laughs> no, I, I think one of the things that the impacts that I'm most excited about it too, I guess I'd say one of them is I'm, I'm glad that a lot of what I consider to be some of the brilliant creators of years past are getting recognition. I'll take small partial credit for that. Let's call it 5%, but just the OSR movement in general had a huge, huge impact on these guys getting the credit that I think they were due, you know, not just Gygax and Arneson, they obviously got lots of credit. Um, but but, you know, in, in DCC RPG on page 10, there's kind of this, you know, list of, I call them elder gods. But these guys who are just brilliant creators and really needed the, I, I'm, just, I'm glad their work's getting attention. Um, so I, I guess one of the impacts I'd be proud of is the fact that these guys are now able to come to conventions and be recognized. And the fact that I've been able to, um, in some cases, employ them or work with them or license from them in a way that lets them continue to, you know, get a good income later in life. Um, and I think one of the lesser known things about each iteration of DCC RPG that list of names on page 10 has changed over the course of the printings. Um, I'm trying to remember. I think we added one or two names or I added one or two names as, as like, you know, my knowledge is still incomplete and there's still so much more for me to know. There's actually another name that I want to add whenever we get around to a fifth printing um, as, as I continue to learn more and be influenced by some of these great creators of the past. Um, so I'm glad it's had a positive impact on their careers and their livelihood and what they've been able to do. Do you want to say who that fifth person is, or do you want that to be a surprise for the fifth printing? 
<laughs> we'll gonna be a surprise. We'll, okay. uh, we'll wait till we get there and then we'll see. <laughs> okay. Well, and, and we can't forget the road crew. I mean, I, I think the yes. list of of DCC games just on this year's Gen Con roster shows a, a good amount of what DCC has done for the community. Yeah, I, I think it's actually awesome how there's been a community that's formed out of it. You know, and, and I think for so long early on as a publisher, I tried to interpret what people would want and produce products that would appeal to them. And, um, you know, and, and I even the DCC line, DCC number one was developed. You guys may or may not remember this, but back around, when was this? Maybe like 2002, 2003, Wizards of the Coast did a study on D&D players and released it publicly for, for anybody to read. It's probably still on the internet somewhere. And, uh, um, you know, there were certain conclusions among which was, as I recall, one third of the players were older than college age. And that was the portion with the highest disposable income. So that's what led me to decide to produce a product that would be targeted at this age group, which I concluded would, you know, need graphic design based on eighties modules. Cause at that age group, that's what they'd remember and so on and so forth. And that's what led to the creation of this first DCC that that's what led to the creation of the DCC line back when it was just adventure modules. And that was still me interpreting like, oh, okay, what do I think? You know, if I get inside the head of this customer, what are they going to want? Um, and then somewhere along the way after the fourth edition crashed, it was less about that, more about like, well, heck, let's just do something I like. And that some of the guys I game with like, you know, and that I was gaming a lot with Doug at the time. Like, what can Doug and I agree on that we like? And, and <laughs> let's just do something that we love and see if other people love that too. And so it's amazing that this community exists because no matter how different we may look from the outside, how we dress or how we talk or where we're from or whatever, we all share a common love of the game and a, a love of a style of gaming that we all have a lot in common that way. And I think that's really awesome. You know, at the risk of this being considered lip service, I never for a moment anticipated the kind of family I was going to become a part of when I first cracked open that tome. So yeah, definitely community. That's great. I mean, and, and that's, you know, it's, it's weird how, um, companies and communities are in some ways reflections of the people involved in them, you know, but I, I am kind of proud of the fact that it's a inclusive, positive group of people that generally welcome others, you know, and, and just want to have fun. I think that's awesome. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, clearly that kind of energy is a, is a reflection of the of the Josephs, but also the Harleys, the Michaels, the Dougs, the yeah. and the Dougs, yes. and the Brandons, the Brandons. and yeah. And the Geo goes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Nine yards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Um, so here's one. Oh, this is not actually my question, but I'm, I'm, it's Judge Jeff's, but I'm dying to know. <laughs> In the judge's rules section of the core book, Joseph, you not only acknowledge that people will homebrew the game, you even encourage it. So what kind of house rules do you play with or, you know, or your favorites that you've seen at uh, tables and so on? Yeah, this is actually a hard question because so I, I haven't actually publicly judged DCC in, I don't know, many years, uh, apparently not quite five, but probably three or so. And one of the one of the problems I had when I was so before the game came out, I could just run the game and be like, hey, these are the rules, you know, and I bring my like loose leaf manuscript and I'd run the game and tell people how we're going to play. And once the game came out, I found out I kept running games that weren't that didn't match the rules as written. Um, oh no! <laughs> yeah, and guys would be like, "Well, that's wrong." Look on page seventy-six, and I'd be like, "Oh yeah, how about that?" Um, so, no, yeah. dude. First line of judges' rules. It's exactly. up to the judge. It is. But and also, you, you can't rules lawyer the creator either. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
but it's not even necessarily lawyering, lawyering. It's, it's, you know, there's expectations and, and people operate under certain assumptions and, and, uh, um, it, it, it's just weird to me that now it's all written down and I have to like follow it. Um, so, I mean, I think like, yeah, part of this is about like, you can just play, I'm going to call it D and D in the broadest sense. And you just, you look at those, I mean, one of my inspirations is those original books. I didn't start playing with the original, um, uh, white box. I started somewhere. I don't even remember exactly where, but the, one of those red covers is the earliest I remember, you know, and the whole game at that time, I think was 64 pages or something, or maybe 32 but, it, you know, it's just amazing how much uh, game you can get up so little content. And so to answer your question, in really broad sense, I think the whole thing's a homebrew, and I think people should just play however they want. And, you know, the, the judge has to be fair and give people a fair shot and not surprise anybody or, you know, it's okay to kill characters, but not due to um, underhanded means or, you know, lack of fairness. But as long as you're being fair, man, just play the game for whatever whatever's the most fun outcome, and, and then you're doing something right. Very cool. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that's... Uh... I think there's a certain part of the community like Judge Jarrett and uh, certainly Doug where that's pretty much exactly how they run it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah whatever, I actually – Awesome. Whatever dice feels good, yeah, dude, roll them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's why the game has all these like weird subsystems like the spell duels. You know, not just because I was watching Hammer Horror movies at the time and saw the spell duels there that inspired Arneson. And, you know, it wasn't just that. It was also the fact that – there were almost like mini games that I would enjoy. Like I love the fact that Dungeon Magazine or Dragon Magazine used to do those like random games, you know, that would have all these chits at the middle. Um, and that's something I'm working towards with the program guide and the Goodman Games Gazette. I don't know which one will do it first, but this idea of little mini games and we've done con games like that. That you know you can you can have subsystems and departures from the the core mechanic and so on if if it's fun and entertaining and better encapsulates something. Almost like how most games need a special chase rules category for horse races and auto races, whatever. Like, and that's fine. That's totally fine. And just roll with it. Hmm. Thank you. Uh, okay. And and the guys want me to ask you, um, yes. what inspired the halfling dual wielder? Yeah. You know, but was it something specific that inspired that, or was it just something you thought would be cool? What did inspire that? <laughs> I don't remember. I mean, like, there's not a lot of halflings in Appendix N. I mean, I think I'd have to think on that. I don't really remember. I remember thinking I had this really cool. I, I thought it was, um, the fact that the original D and D system for dual wielding, or not original, I think third edition, but it involved so much math. You know, you got like a minus one with this hand and a minus four with this hand, unless you were ambidextrous, in which case it was a minus three and a minus two or whatever. Like it was just so <laughs> complicated. And I remember as I got like more and more into dice. And you guys might know this, but like the Zaki dice, they're obviously prevalent in DCC, but they've been in the DCC module line forever. I think like, um, you know, the first DCC uh, module for the rule set of DCC RPG was number 66.5. But those weird dice were appearing in the, the modules back in like, I think around the number 30 mark or something. We used to try to work in a D5 on like the wandering, you know, encounter charts and so on. Um and I still remember I, I I used to carry Zaki's dice on my website um, back in like the third edition days, and it was just loose dice that I sold because I thought they were cool. Um, I still remember Lou calling me once late at night because he, he was that's just how he is. And somehow he got my personal <laughs> cell phone and like called me at like 9 p.m. on some night and had this long chat and wanted me to pick up some more dice from him. But um, the point is I like those funky dice and I thought it'd be really fun to do you know hey it's fun to roll weird dice and it would be a simpler way of doing two weapon fighting and that led to the whole thought process on different dice for two weapon fighting as to how it ended up with halflings i do not remember at all 
Okay, so, so we'll we'll just blame Doug, right? Yes. <laughs> I, I love I love the people. You know, DCC is a particular kind of game. It's definitely bent toward a particular kind of gamer and experience as it should be. And, you know, some people are just not going to find it their cup of tea if they're third or fourth edition guys. And, you know, whatever. It's all cool. Play the game that you find most fun and all that. But the thing that cracks me up is the occasional guy who is like, I really can't get into DCC because of all the funky dice. I know. It's like, like, did you... That's really it? That's the... Like, did you ever try to randomly generate spells in the old player's hand... Wizard spells in the old player's handbook? You know, like... But just at North Texas, I, I mean, just at North Texas, I encountered somebody who said the exact same thing, and then I handed them a D seven and I had them roll it, and they just laughed. Like, there's something <laughs> when you hand somebody the D seven and just ask them to roll it, like it just brings joy into people's eyes. Well, like they can't believe yeah. what they're looking at. <laughs> yep. It, well, remember the guy, remember guys when when you were like six years old and you first discovered the D four and you didn't know how to read it because it's <laughs> yes. the one where depending on the version you have, you know, no matter what, the numbers in a weird spot. There's usually three of them around the edge, and uh, you know, I still remember that sense of like wonder and confusion, you know, and and that's what I wanted because that's the experience of playing as a child where everything is new, not just the monsters but also the dice and. I mean, you know, now that Impact has come up with a D9 and a D11, like I'm, I'm like so tempted to try to work those in somehow, which I know is a bad <laughs> idea. But maybe I'm like some, you know, article in the program guide or something where we have D9 this or D11 that, because it, yeah, it's a sense of wonder. And I, I still remember the complaints too from people who, um, they thought the dice would cost too much because it does cost twenty or thirty bucks depending on where you get them. Yeah. But like if you play almost any other system, you're going to spend hundreds of dollars in supplements and add-ons and source books, you know. And then there'd be the guys who complained that they couldn't get a hold of them. And of course, there's so many ways to simulate the dice without actually having them. But but that's been fixed over time. It's now pretty well available commercially. Um, Zaki actually told me, I mean, he got a huge spike in sales after DCC came out. Oh, um, I bet. Yeah, just from people seeking out the dice. Um, mm-hmm. And it, he went through uh, turbulent times of his own due to he sold the company and it didn't work out. And he had to go back and take possession again. And it just the timing kind of worked out for DCC to also sort of benefit him and his business um, as people look for the dice and it worked out. So it's been good for a lot of things, but I'm with you. Yeah. I love seeing that look of excitement on their face. And my experience has been when I get that resistance, if I just like you get them to roll the game or roll the dice or play the game for five or 10 minutes and it's not long before they're enjoying it. And that's all you need is for them to enjoy it. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I brought DCC with me when I went to go visit my family in Montana. Uh, this is maybe almost a year ago now. And um, I got my mom, my brother, my sister-in-law, and my nine-year-old niece and my 11-year-old nephew, and I ran them through the Shambling Undead. And, awesome. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> and, of all the... Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And I didn't even tell them what we were doing. I just said, on Sunday, we're playing a game. And then when I got them all around the table, I just handed them some some zero levels and brought out the dice, and they had so much fun. And it's the kind of thing where I know if I had said, hey, do you guys want to play this role-playing game, they would have rolled their eyes and be like, no, we don't want to do that. But when yeah. you actually just get them at the table and like start doing it, they were laughing and having so much fun. That's awesome. You know, it's funny. Something I've thought about, because I just want to have one core book, but I like the idea of people being able to personalize it for themselves. Do you remember in like sixth grade when you had to make a book cover of some sort of project for class? Yes. Oh, mm. yeah. Yeah, like I was thinking of doing some sort of book cover thing for DCC where either we publish different pieces of art, you know, there's like 20 available or something, and you buy the book cover you want to put on your copy to personalize it. Or I do one that's like, you know, 
I don't know, white spaces or little boxes where you draw a picture of your character or put a picture of yourself or something. But just on that on that note, like it doesn't have to be presented as a role playing game. It can be covered in any kind of cover or skin you want and just be a fun game. You know, it doesn't have to be D and D ish. And because people oh. love playing it, you know, we're, we're, to your point, you don't have to tell them what you're doing. Just play the game with them. And if it's a fun game, they'll like it. And yeah. later on, you can tell them this is what it was. Yeah, do something akin to the dragon skins. Yeah, exactly. That's the concept. Yeah, and like I still want to do what I call the family edition. Um, this year for Free RPG Day, we have a um, you know a, a very slim version of the game, which only goes to level two because really it's the spells that take up all the, the page count in the book. And even that, um, you know, we did a first pass, and then Terry Olson went through with his uh, scientific mind and came up with some great suggestions on how to uh, streamline it even more to you know save another couple pages. And I still want to eventually do what I'm going to call the family edition, which is just a very you know like typeface and 12 point font, something that a eight to ten year old can enjoy reading. Um, and something you can just play very simply with the family and, and nobody has to even call it a role-playing game. It's just a game, just like Monopoly. And then, you know, if you really get into it, then you find your local game store and buy the, buy the core book. That, That's an awesome yeah. idea. Yeah, someday. It's on the to-do list when the time is right. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. So we have only one question left on our list here. Should we go ahead and, and ask our last question, guys? Yes, please. Yeah. All right. So, Joseph, we've been talking about the last five years and, you know, what you uh, memories you have and thoughts you have about the past five years. But um, I'm curious and we're curious in general. uh, What are the next five years going to be like? What are some plans that you have uh, coming up ahead that you might be willing to talk about or some long term goals for DCC? Just whatever it is you want to share with us. Sure. That's a great question. Um, and it's hard for me to say, I will tell you that I, I do like the idea of continuing to explore Appendix N as an inspirational source. So you know that we've announced publicly that we have licenses, you know, obviously to Fritz Leiber's work um, and Jack Vance is also out there. And I have a third Appendix N license that I've already signed the license on. Um, and that's in the works as well. And I think eventually it'd be great to keep exploring just these worlds and continue publishing stuff for them. But I think the other thing that oh, I wanted to adapt. hold on, here's my son, Haven. Haven, do you want to say hi to these guys? Say hi right here. Can you say hi? Hi. Hi, Haven. Hi, Haven. <laughs> they say hi, hi, Haven. Do you want to tell them what you were telling me? Um, mommy made me a jet. That's a really, it's a paper airplane. That's a really cool paper Ooh. airplane jet. Cool. Very nice. Okay. I'm going to finish Mama's talking to these good. guys, buddy. Just a okay. couple minutes. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Haven, I'll, I'll come play a game with you in a little bit, okay? Yeah. He's he's eager to resume the campaign, clearly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. He loves – well, yeah, this is paper airplanes, but it'll turn into some sort of airplane battle game sooner or later. Um, yeah. Yeah, so what are the next five years going to be like? Well, some more interruptions. <laughs> <until he's> in <laughs> the uh, but I, I think – so let me tell you about a project I'm working on. Um, it's called Tales from the Magician's Skull, and it's a Ooh. fiction magazine. I don't even know whether I should call it a magazine. It's a fiction book. And I, I think something that, um, I'll, you know, I'll send you guys the cover. You can be the, you can be the first ones to show it off. It'll be announced in more detail at, at Gen Con. But I've, you know, gone down this weird road of uh, publishing games based on fiction. And now I decided I want to publish fiction that will inspire games. And so it's a collection of stories. It's a, it, I guess a magazine is the best term. It'll be published semi-regularly whenever we get around to it, which means, you know, as we have really cool stories. Um, and it'll be a collection of stories that, are what I described earlier, the sort of pre-genre and um, not self-aware of D&D, at least as much as possible, because if you're writing in the modern era, you know you, you know about these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but the stories are 
just awesome stories that like when I read them, part of the criteria was that I had to read them and be like really excited and say to myself like, wow, I want to run a game based on this. Um, and then in an appendix at the back, it's sort of inverse D and D style. Instead of having an appendix listing um, the fiction, we'll have a book of fiction and an appendix in the back. will list DCC stats for some of the, you know, spells and creatures and so on described in the appendix or in the fictional works inside. Um, mm. Yeah. And it's just to give people, you know, there can be so much inspiration that comes when you don't box yourself in and you just let your mind run wild and, and try to think about how players will perceive these things. Um, anyway, so that'll, we'll announce that at Gen Con. It'll probably come out later in the year. And hopefully we just continue to do these things that give people the inspiration um, to run really fun games because that's what it's all about. That is beyond awesome. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, you know, it, as long as it's published a little bit more frequently than, say, the annual. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, come on. It's been five years. I got to throw that in. <laughs> yeah, I know. It actually is. It's all written. It's all edited. Almost all the art is done. Um, and somebody's going to start the layout in probably about three to four weeks as certain other things get done. Um, the cover art's done. Yeah, I know. I'm working on it any day now. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good, actually. I had no idea it was so far along. That's amazing. Yeah, it's just I kind of, you know, I make these plans and then I kind of roll with whatever's going on and when it feels like the right time to do something and it just hasn't felt like quite the right time. But I think, you know, it, with the with the Kickstarter for the fourth printing, we brought in a lot of new fans, which is really exciting. Um, and then with this free RPG day, with the quick start rules, I think we'll bring in even more new fans. And I think now is the time to address this broader audience. And now I, I think actually we're getting very close to the right time for the annual, which, yes, it should definitely be renamed. But well joseph thank you so much for being on the show tonight it was great having you on here thank you Yay! it was awesome to be on here i've listened to you guys or the original cast as i've worked into you guys since the beginning um so it, it's awesome to to finally be on here it's my honor and it's been Yay! a pleasure having you on here all thank right you. So everybody, uh, we're gonna we're gonna wrap this on up. I just want to remind everybody to leave us a rating on iTunes, follow us on Twitter, and if you have any any questions for us, please email us at theband at spellburn.com. And don't forget that uh, Saturday, June seventeenth is Free RPG Day. So go to freerpgday.com to find out your local participating retailer. Go and get your your DCC Free RPG Day book and. Uh, hang out and play some games so all right everybody thank you so much for listening and uh do we have any last words run some games on free rpg day it's a great thing to do perfect yay i'm signed up for three but come on (laughs) you're an overachiever jen good job wow i'm only running one i'm definitely the slacker (laughs) what can i say man had this been a year earlier or a year later you know discovering it back in 2012 but honestly got to say it came around just at the perfect time in my life. I doubt I would have picked it up had it been 2011 or 2013. So just really hit the sweet spot and yeah, I will continue to evangelize for as long as you will allow me. (laughs) Thank you. That's great. I appreciate it. Thanks everybody for having me on. All right. Thank you so much. Have a good night, everyone. Thanks Joseph. You've been listening to Spellbird. Copyright 2017. Our theme song has been graciously provided by Glitter Wizard. 
Learn more at glitterwizard.bandcamp.com.